Hello there, fair podcast listener. And before we get into the podcast proper, there's two things I just wanted to share with you. So one, I've worked really hard to get the audio quality in this podcast episode as high as it can be. That said, there is still a little bit of interference on one of the microphones. So there are times, few times during the podcast where you'll hear some interference on the mic. I've done everything I can to mitigate it and minimise it, but it's still there. So uh, thank you for your patience for those small bits um, in the podcast. Secondly, 2018 and 19 are going to be exciting years for, for the motion at work. We've got lots of things happening. Live podcasts, which I mentioned earlier on in the year. Um, a community is being built as well, as well as a structured development program, which will have some academic rigor behind it too. So all of that is happening. And if you want to be the first to hear, then you can sign up. There's a sign up form that you can complete at emotionatwork.co.uk. So that's emotion at, as in at, work.co.uk. Head there. Fill in the um, form and that will register you for you so you are first to hear about all the exciting things that are to come. So with that done, let's hand over to the podcast proper. Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and this podcast has been a long time coming and I'm very excited about this conversation today. So today's guest makes me think a lot and they make me think really hard and make me think really deeply. So what I find is that whenever we get together we discuss stuff, we explore, we debate, we share, we support each other in terms of our thinking and um, our our work and what we're doing and how we're doing it and and it it always kind of has emotion and the workplace in it in one way shape or form um and i just love talking with our guest because she makes me think so much and it's just great fun um to talk with her and she's also worked in some highly emotionally charged workplaces and with people and situations that involve high or intense emotion and for me, her experience as a practitioner is invaluable because she couples that with real deep knowledge, understanding and, and wider reading as well. So now I've done that wonderful build up, all of which is true. Let's get her on the air. So welcome to the podcast, Joe Wainwright. Hi, Joe. Hello. Thank you for that lovely introduction. That's OK. It's all true. So it's all good. Um, and, and, and I get it. Yeah, it just makes me really excited about what we're going to talk about today, because um, e- even on our I really wanted to record our pre-podcast call where we kind of talk about what we're going to talk about and how we're going to frame it. There was loads of stuff in that. I was like, oh, I wish I was recording this. That would have been amazing for the podcast. Mm. So um, it's going to be great today. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. How are, you feeling, how are you feeling about it? That's all right. Oh, yeah. Equally looking forward to it. And um, we started the pre-conversation with me thinking, oh, I'm not really sure I've got anything to say that would be of, of uh, interest. And then we just started talking like usual and I just got excited and and yeah lots to talk about when it comes to this kind of stuff okay all right so my as usual for the podcast I'm going to open with my unexpected and innocuous question so my one for you then is what have you craved recently oh what have I craved recently mm-hmm the first thing that comes into my mind is being outdoors and in green spaces I'm, okay I'm living in Sheffield after not living in a city for a long time and I'm a true country person 
And as much as Sheffield is a really, it's known for being a green city and an outdoor city, I really crave when I haven't been in big open green spaces. Okay. So I think that and just knowing I need it and love it and enjoy being in those kind of spaces and then I almost just forget to plan them in. And what, you forget to plan the time in to visit them, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I can't, I can't get to the place that I need. It's a, bit, it's a bit like, you've used the word crave and you've switched on my addiction thinking, but it's a bit like <laughs> my tolerance levels are really high, so I have to give myself a really, really high dose of greenness. I can't just go to the park. I think it's lovely when I see people sitting in the park in cities on hot days or enjoying a bit of space like in the middle of the city if there's like a, a patch of grass but it just doesn't do anything for me I need a I need a bigger hit of greenness so I have to take myself deep into the woods where there aren't many people um where I went recently actually with a friend yeah, yeah. and or into the middle of the peak where you can you see a view that is just vast and great and beyond anything that you can um yeah, just to give you that transcendence kind of thing. Okay, so, so it's not necessarily about kind of getting lost in the in as you sort of say, getting lost in the woods. Is it is it is it getting lost? But you can be lost either in the woods or in the vast openness of the peak. Yeah, absolutely. It's being somewhere which connects to having meaning for me. It's being somewhere where you are surrounded by things that are greater beyond yourself okay so it just puts things into perspective and i find it very grounding and wonderful fab what about you what have you been craving recently fruit (laughs) any specific kind of fruit so uh, no not really um but i think it's more just like not stodge so i've i've had a very, my diet has been very stodge filled this week so i've been away a lot mm. and being away a lot often involves stodge um so what so the the evenings this week involved a portuguese based chicken outlet um a curry a fish and chip shop and a pizza place so I like I, I don't feel like I've had healthy goodness food. I mean all the food was delicious and wonderful, you know, and tasted wonderful. Um but I don't feel like I've had sort of healthy um healthy stuff and I and I just feel like I need to yeah, get some good healthy stuff. So I've got a um I've got a juice in the fridge ready for lunchtime which is a mix of strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, Greek yogurt, apple and pineapple. Um, waiting for waiting for me for for lunch today. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Very nice. And dinner is a salad. Salad. Uh, no, dinner is um, not yet in the slow cooker. All the ingredients are ready to go in. So, dinner is a chicken and chorizo stew. Mm. Um, and I'm going to do that with some rice and something else that I haven't decided what yet. Well, should I might do it with some bread. I might do it with some crusty bread and some salad. Mm. That might be nice. I'm hungry now because I've had a rubbish breakfast. 
Yeah, but you said you said that off air. But toast is a toast isn't a rubbish breakfast. I don't think. Oh, I don't think it is. I suppose it's a maybe it's a if we're going by my definition of stodge, it's a stodge breakfast maybe. Or you can make it a hundred percent better if you put a poached egg on it. Or yeah, it's just it's just toast. Okay. All right. So I, I do like a nice warm warm kind of. Uh, seeded bread with thick lashings of butter on. Mm. That's that's what it was. So it wasn't yes, shit toast. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the spectrum of toast, it was at the far end. It, it was it was it was at the non shit end of toast. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't love- it wasn't processed white with some margarina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving the. Uh, I'm loving that we have we've introduced a. Shit or non-shit <laughs> toast spectrum. There's a spectrum for everything, isn't there? I do. I do love a spectrum, and there is a spectrum for everything. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to pause our conversation for a second because it doesn't look as though what I'm that my recording device is recording. Uh, it seems stuck at seven and a half minutes. You're making me laugh when you talk. Does it matter if I interrupt you? No, 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 you carry on. Um, okay, so no, it has been recording the whole time. It just looks like it stops. So that's fine. Phew, wipes brow. I think and, mine's fine. And, and waves t-shirt to alleviate the sweats that's happening <laughs> for not recording properly. <laughs> it happens. So yes, you can you, you can interrupt me whenever you want. I was talking polit- particularly slowly there because I was like, is it going to work? Is it working? Is it not working? Is it working? Is it not working? <laughs> um, all right, okay. So... In uh, in that, then you, when I said the word crave, you said that it um, triggered something for you. Um, I can't remember how you phrased it. What did you say? Triggered your thoughts on addiction? Yeah, my addiction thinking. I think when you use the your word crave thinking. and trigger. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's probably a useful way in to, to talk about some of your background, then, because I mentioned in my intro that. Um, you've worked in some, you know, you're, some of the workplaces you've worked in have been really emotionally charged and you work with um, incidences or with people that are experiencing high emotion. So that might be a good way in to talk about some of that stuff then. So where does your addiction thinking kind of what, yeah, where does that come from? It, it comes all the way from studies, I guess. And um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology, I think it's fair to say that everybody was most excited about the module that we did on sex addiction so just because it was intriguing and what is that and Mm. having a look at it so I've also spent 10 years working for an organization that works with drug alcohol and mental health treatment and a large amount of that is working with people who are addicted to substances addicted to alcohol and I've done a lot of learning and a lot of therapeutic intervention around addiction and and how is how is it to work in a workplace then or how is it to be in a workplace that is dealing with those well because addiction itself is a is a very emotive topic Mm. but then you've also got the um you're doing doing the work with people that are um experiencing substance abuse or alcohol abuse so Mm. how how, yeah how I guess as much as it sounds a bit cliche how how is that how does that work 
Um, well, firstly, it's wonderful because the, the people that you work with are wonderful. Um, and I don't know if that's because you have to be the kind of person that is able to see the strength and the good and the wonderful in people to do that kind of work or not. But you just tend to get a, a teamwork and colleagues and environments that are, are great and supportive and rich. You're doing something quite purposeful together and it brings you together. It's also yeah. emotional work. It's, it's quite normal to have emails and meetings throughout the day where you might be discussing things, um, critical incidents such as deaths and risk of death and suicide and domestic abuse and in an operational context working with people where those um, issues and experiences are common so um, a team that I managed and prior to managing them that we would do like development workshops and training sessions on very emotive topics it's just kind of the way the work is it is very emotional I think compared everything's relative about whether work is emotional for people um, yeah. and I think spectrum wise let's bring a spectrum in um, it is on the far end of it's, um, it's emotional work it triggers emotions to do and be in that environment and I think I decided very 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 early on because I've somehow managed to put myself into emotional work situations from volunteering as a student that I didn't want to stop being able to feel everything that emotional work and emotional environments make me feel. I didn't want to turn okay. it off and become non-feeling and cold to it and, and not notice it. So there had to be another way. And, and what... Um, can you remember what was behind that choice then? Because I suppose... The, the implication within that was that there's two choices. You either turn yourself off or you don't. And in, and, and in reality, there might be more choices than that. Mm. But if I, sti- if I stick with, with kind of how you positioned it, what, what made that, what, do you remember what kind of contributed or what, what were some of your rationale for making, um, for making that choice for you? What, you know, what, why did you choose to say, I'm, I'm going to feel it, I'm not going to turn it off? Maybe. Just now you've put it that way, maybe maybe there wasn't a choice because I couldn't turn it off. So maybe in learning to manage it, instead of thinking, oh, you shouldn't be thinking that, or you shouldn't be feeling that, I had a really positive experience when I was a volunteer for a... I was a telephone counsellor for a very... Well, I don't know if I can say it out loud, a very... Well, yeah, you can say it, it's oh, fine. ...of child life uh, for two and a half years when I was a student, and... I I would I had a really good experience in terms of the training and the brief and the debrief and the supervision and the standard of that while I was there mm. that I've never seen replicated as good as that anywhere. But I've tried in my work and my career to encourage workplaces and, and people to replicate and and do it as good as that. And I think I just uh, yeah I don't I think now you said it that way there wasn't a choice. It, I, I felt it, I felt stuff, and I needed to find a way to let it out. I think um, I remember my mum always encouraging that when I was younger. I was always an emotional person. That didn't mean um, that I had uncontrollable emotions, although I'm sure 
she'd argue differently at different stages of my childhood <laughs> and teenage. <laughs> but it was a just. So let me bring her. Let me bring her in. So, James. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she'll corroborate that I was a nightmare. <laughs> 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 um, I, <laughs> if I had like stuff, I think when you're at school and you're a teenager and you come home with a problem and it's the worst thing in the world, my mum would just lay with me on my bed and listen to me and let me cry until I was so exhausted I couldn't cry anymore and then we'd figure out what we were going to do about it. So there was never a, she never used to say, should you really be feeling that upset about the fact that your friend didn't invite you to sit with them at lunch or something like that? Because it was the worst problem in the world for me at the time. So yeah, yeah. Um, I never really thought about her impact on that before. So when I was a volunteer at Childline and I uh, was able to learn to, be, to do emotional labour and be a counsellor and do, do that on the telephone and do that well after we... Um, debriefed and left the shift and dumped any baggage is what we used to call it I would then get in the car and drive back and have a good cry and put some music on and play it really loud and sing really loud and I don't think there are many shifts that I left there that 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 wasn't my one of my coping things or just one of the things that I did or ended up doing because once I got in the car and I was by myself and I was thinking blimey I've just stepped out of this bubble that is the counselling room on the telephones at Childline, which is a magical, wonderful place to spend time. And got into the car, set off back into the real world, and then it's like, shit, all of that stuff's really not very good. And thankful and feeling, and rightly so, that tiny bit of feeling of goodness that I've been able to have a conversation with someone who really needed to talk and listen to someone who's having a horrible time but yeah I just used to have a good cry and so I, I want to come back to that in, in a minute um but before I do can I just sort of go back in time to pre the car so when when you would do that baggage dumping thing what were some of the 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 things that Charline put in place then so you said you know the experience you had was one like you know that that supervision support and so on was something like you've never had elsewhere so what what were they doing that kind of was so good if you don't mind me asking yeah of course I don't they they were doing what everybody thinks they're doing but there's different levels of doing it really well and not doing it very well. So you can say that you give everybody a monthly one-to-one, but what actually happens in that monthly one-to-one is is significant. It's the quality of it and what someone experiences and the conditions you create for them. So we had a 15-minute brief, or sometimes it might have been 30. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Yeah, it's okay. And uh, the same amount of time for a debrief. And sometimes in the debrief, it might go on a bit longer if it needed to. But I just remember it never it never really went on because it was managed and facilitated and, and, and led so well that the space and the environment when you were in that debrief and brief room, the, it, it was okay to just be as open as possible as to how you were that day. And it was the same to be as open um, as you wanted to be and you were encouraged to be as to how your shift had gone. And I suppose that was led by example by more experienced counsellors there and the shift supervisor. Okay. So it's about the space that was created by the group and by the people that you were sat with there. 
And how many would be in a group, roughly? It depends. That literally depends on how many volunteers signed up to be on your shift. So some shifts were popular than others. And I've, I've been on shift where there was two of us. And I've been on shift where there was eight of us. And I think it. I think you, you'd be lucky if you got eight volunteers for a shift. And then maybe because of the amount of volunteers that we had, the, the supervisors would try and balance that out and ask you if you could do another one. So probably about four to six people and so it was like a uh, like a clean down type thing so it was an opportunity for you to to share either in the pre-brief was to share how you were how you were what was happening what was going on for you um to help you get ready for what was for the shift that was ahead and then at the end it was a right this is how I'm feeling now this is what I'm thinking at the end of that shift yeah absolutely um, and, the, and, and then was it discussed or was it just an opportunity for you to air it no I don't, I don't think it was discussed it was just an opportunity to air it I think you just dumped baggage and then people just um I can't remember what made it so good but it must be because um everybody was trained in counselling and those approaches yeah. person-centered approaches so when you walked in and went uh, and you're asked to dump your baggage, and it might be, oh, I've just had road rage, or I've had a terrible day, or my daughter's got issues at school, and it's just on my mind. It would just be a space to, to say that out loud and literally dump it and leave it in that room and then pick it up on the way out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was really good. And, and you said that you, you then try to recreate similar stuff in... Um, in other workplaces that you've been in, um, so how how has that gone? What sort? Of, how, how have you? So I suppose where I'm, so where I'm coming from with with this question is, if if I'm a if I'm a listener to the podcast and I'm thinking, well, that sounds, I mean, that sounds amazing, but that was in a really specific kind of context. Um, what what else has you know what else has happened or what else has Joe done in different workplaces to help support individuals in that way? Um, embedding good supervision structures and good peer supervision structures and and long, small win, continually um, trying to impact culture of the workplace and culture of different teams where having a long, regular one-to-one or making space for peer supervision that doesn't have a definitive goal, but is really important. Um, and encouraging people to use that well and do that well and don't underestimate the value of it. Okay. So when you say um, supervision and then peer supervision, so and then you mentioned briefly one-to-one, so is, is that what you mean by supervision? Is the, um, the regular one-to-one practice between... Uh, individuals and their line manager to allow them to discuss and air and explore yeah. what they're thinking and how they're feeling about the work they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, d- I know people call them one-to-one appraisals. I think I do prefer the term supervision because you are, as a manager, supervising that person's performance. And when it's emotional mm-hmm. work and emotional labour that is their performance, um. I think that needs the same kind of rigour in terms of performance management. 
even though it's not necessarily okay. looking at someone's uh, uh, quantitative output, it's looking at someone's qualitative output and qualitative performance. And it's the performance management that you do around that. And I think it's easy to neglect that because it isn't quantitative. Quantitative. Either one. Either one's fine. <laughs> and then peer supervision? Oh, that would be where you make a more enabling and supportive environment where you get people to do that as groups. So people to bring problems or issues or experiences or just get together and talk about how it's going at the moment and look at that as a group and reflect on that as a group and support each other as a group. Okay. So you might do that in like an action learning set model. And I know action learning or sets have got loads of different approaches and models within them, but in terms of yeah. bringing a problem in a, in a safe space where you can talk about your experience of that problem without being judged and be open to hearing um, opinions and thoughts and help and advice from other people or find a different way of doing it for yourself, just a space to, to have some thinking and to, to go through that and do reflective practice. So group reflective practice. So in, in clinical settings, for someone who is a registered professional, a yeah. clinician like a nurse or a doctor or a psychiatrist, it is a requirement of their registration with obviously the, the, the appropriate body that yeah. they have regular clinical supervision. So the quality of that supervision and the experience of it, I'm not sure how that's measured or if that's effectively measured or assessed. But as long as someone has those dates and they recall that they've had a one-to-one with the right person who, who should be providing their clinical supervision, which has to be someone who's in that context clinically more responsible within the organisation or within the con- context of work so that they can manage the liability. So that yeah. has to be provided. So if organisations have got nurses and other registered professionals, they have to make space and time for that. So I've spent a lot of time working with drug and alcohol practitioners and they um, can be registered nationally, which some organisations choose to do to upskill their workforce and provide that rigour, but they don't have to be which means they don't have to have clinical supervision, which means the supervision structure and the parameters of how they're supported is determined by the choices that that organisation makes and obviously um, requirements of things like Care Quality Commission. But the experience of what people get isn't necessarily enough. I think, I think um, that organisations are negligent at that. Is that is that an extreme word? Or I'm going to I'm going to say it. I think a lot of workplaces and organisations don't provide enough of that, or the, a good quality of that, because the, the time, twenty minutes of really good supervision and really good listening, and doing the um, performance management on psychological and emotional work and emotional labour can be really really impactful if it's done well. Or you could spend mm. an hour doing it really poorly. And so, when you say organisations are negligent, are you, are you making that kind of 
thought beyond the clinical setting you're saying because because yeah. in clinical settings it's a requirement so therefore they 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 do it um but beyond that because it's not a requirement it's it's not done or it's done poorly i don't know many places that do do it it's a bit like um if you are employing someone to do emotional work and to do emotional labor then as an employer you are responsible for providing somebody with the resources and access to develop their skills to be able to perform effectively in that emotional labour, in that emotional work context. It's the same as making sure that people have got safety boots and a hard hat and glasses and earplugs if they're going into a manufacturing plant. I don't know a single um, manufacturing business or organisation that would dare to be negligent with that health and safety equipment and we can see it we, we see if somebody walks through an area like that or they step into the factory and they haven't got that kit on, it is very obvious, we can see it, we know it it's easy to audit it for example but when the work mm-hmm. isn't that kind of work and the work is, is human skills and it's, it's emotional labour and it's emotional work and it's about human performance and, and yeah emotional labor and brain work and thinking and transactional and, and that kind of stuff we don't how do we spot whether someone's got their safety hat on how do we give somebody hard steel toe cap boots okay i'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that in a minute because i i i i i, I wanted to say so much during them but I just didn't say anything because I wanted to let the power of what you were saying kind of sit so that was uh, I want to come back to that in a minute um we've used a couple of terms a number of times and I wonder if I wonder for the listeners if it would be useful for us to just define them so we've we've talked about emotional work and emotional labor um and we've talked about them as different things so could we define them for the listener please yeah these are just my definitions so I'm happy for yeah, no, that's you fine. You to yeah, disagree fine. and other people to disagree. But I think emotional work is quite simply when work is emotional. So there are environments where work evokes emotion. And there are environments yep. where, as I mentioned earlier, that's quite relative for people. So it's yeah it's about individual experience but we might say that people will get more emotional they're more likely to be emotionally triggered in environments where they are talking about or um, observing or exposed to things like domestic violence and suicide and people dying and those kind of situations okay and we might also think people do so any work that triggers emotion and we might also say that emotional work is when organizations want people to come to work intrinsically motivated so they want people to come to work and be motivated by the purpose of the work okay and align themselves to the values so it's does that make sense it does and then i believe that emotional labor is when people are paid to do emotion work and to manage their own emotions. So part of their contractual agreement and what they are paid for is to be self-aware, 
self-knowing, to understand and recognise their own emotions, to manage them effectively so that they have choice and control in the behaviour that they exhibit. And if you think about a counselling situation or a, um, a coaching situation or an addiction treatment situation, that is the work. Emotional labour is being able to sit and provide a service for someone even though you might not feel like the things that they have done as a person are, are great. So it's about managing your emotions and how you feel about the things that you're going to come across. So you have it in that context. We also have it in a context where people expect people that they've employed to have a smile on their face mm-hmm. or to yeah, be nice and be kind and do emotional labour so that they don't shout at somebody in a meeting. So again, spectrums, there's different um, levels of how much emotional labour we have to do. And, the, and emotional labour is also the work that we do within our own selves and within our own thinking and our mind and our physiology to present ourselves behaviourally and visually in the right way so that we're communicating what we intend to communicate and our emotions aren't leaking out or slipping out or interrupting what we're trying to do and making us ineffective. And while we're there, (laughs) I think emotional exploitation is when you ask someone to do emotional labour within the context of emotional work, but you don't provide the resources for them to be able to do that effectively and safely. So where you're not providing the hard hats, the high-vis jackets and the and the things that you need to keep you safe. Absolutely, yeah. Where you've got people motivated by the purpose of the work that they do and not the money and not the conditions and not the perks. And when you manage people in that way, it's very easy to, to do implicit or explicit demands for more and better like maximising on their emotional commitment to the work. Yeah. And then we easily, when people are in those situations, can exploit themselves. So things like, I know we're, we're, sta- we're two staff members down this week, but this, this new case has just come in and this has happened to them and this has happened to them and I really need somebody to do it. So emotionally tugging things. Yeah. Um, and no one's going to go, I'm too busy to pick that up, so that person's just going to have to stay in that dire situation for another week. They're going to go, yeah, I will make time, I will stay later, I will come in at the weekend. You see, I, 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 I know you're talking about spectrums, and you caveated it by saying it's relative, but I think that same strategy is used... In in every in uh, uh, so I, I nearly said everyday work situations and then I caught myself but I've said it now so I'll go with it. <laughs> so if if I if I change that example from um, this person is in you know physical or um, um, you know psychological uh, trauma, mm-hmm. therefore they need help. We're two people down, so you know who's going to pick up this work. If I if I change that slightly to be this client has demanded that we deliver this work this week 
I know we're two people dating, but if we don't deliver, the client's going to be unhappy. And then the implication is if the client's unhappy, the client's not going to pay. And if the client doesn't pay, we've not got any revenue. If we've not got any revenue, then you've not got a job. And if you've not got a job, you can't provide for yourself or your family. Yeah. Um, and if you can't provide, you know, so so even though I, I know you're saying that there's a spectrum, I, I think even just in that example, you could easily change the service user is in dire need to the client wants this or this person has asked for this or we've promised to deliver x or we've committed to deliver y or um you know yeah. the business is expecting us to launch z or whatever that is um and and there's that that expectation for for people to pick up that work which will then have emotional demands on them yeah i, I don't think it's that different or am I talking out my ass? <laughs> Neither. Um, I think it. Um, I think it's different based on the individual's reasons for coming to work, and I think there are a lot of. Um, I can generalise like sectors or um, charities, for example, where. Yes, people need money. People come to work because they need money and that's a baseline need. And if it's not there and if it's not enough, then it becomes a a stronger driver. And also at the same time, the majority of the reason people come to work is about the purpose. And yeah, that can be exactly the same for whatever work you do. Um, My sister gets very enthusiastic and purposeful about her work. Um, and I and I love that about her. And at one stage, she was working for a paper recycling company, and um, okay. she's done a lot of work in systems and IT. And she gets really passionate about the purposefulness of it, which I, as her younger sister, frequently take the mick out of. But I do see that. I guess that's the point. What what business leader wouldn't want their people coming to work? enthusiastic and driven about the purpose of what that organization is fulfilling yeah and 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 that's a lot of the narrative though isn't it if you think about the popularity of um of simon sinek and and his work you think about the um uh um victor frankel and his um his book the purpose of no is it Man and something, One something man, man and meaning. Search for meaning. That's it. Um, and if you think about a lot of the narrative, and not as much as I as I don't ascribe to the gen, to the um, to the uh, what am I look? What word am I looking for? The generalizations by demographic, by age demographic, so millennials and Gen Xs and all of that jazz. As much as I don't ascribe to that. Um, what I do see very commonly in the workplace is organisations that are aiming to articulate their reason for being beyond we want to make profit. Yeah. You know, so it's not just about we want to make as much money for the shareholders or as much money for the directors or as much money as possible. It's about we are do- we are also doing it for this reason. Mm. Um, and the and the aim then is to try and get people to be, as you said earlier on, intrinsically motivated to come to work. Mm. You know, to be intrinsically motivated to. Um, uh, to to be in the workplace mm. and and what that is then doing is it's it's creating an you're creating an emotional connection 
So the moment somebody is feel they feel connected to the business, you are making an emotional connection, and therefore people are doing emotional work, and they will do emotional labour. So Absolutely. in terms of your 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 definitions earlier on, I I agree with you. So emotional labour is the is the work I have to do to perform my job. So this is where an organisation says, right, our values are um, be positive, be honest, yeah. be supportive be collaborative yeah you know so though what the organization is saying is these are the these are the behaviors and therefore the associated emotions that we need so for example if i tell you that i'm not going to deliver the work that you've asked me to deliver because i think it's a waste of effort and energy and it's not a project that i want to do you, they could say, "Well, hang on a minute. Our 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 value is be collaborative, and you're not being collaborative. You're yeah. you're you're you know you're not you're not working with me." So I then have to do some emotional labour. So I have to find a way of telling you that I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and still be upholding of the company values that are, are written on a wall and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, I've got to do some emotion work where I have to to work with and and, and you know regulate the how i feel about my work my colleagues myself my workplace my team and all of those sorts of things as well um and i agree with you in that what then happens is if you display emotion that doesn't fit with what the organization wants you to portray there is no way or means of dealing with that in the workplace you might be able to you might, you know, you might find ways of dealing with that outside of work, or you might find ways of dealing with that yourself. But there is the the opportunity to sit down and say, you know what, I am really annoyed today. Mm. I am really upset today. Mm. I am really anxious today, because those aren't things that organisations say they want. Absolutely. They say they want people that are happy or positive or, you know, whatever Can that might do be. Attitude. Yeah, or, 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 or um, 100% of the other? time, every day, this is how we yeah. are. Yeah. Which isn't humanly like, possible. No, and it's like saying we want passion, but we don't want anger. And that's just important. You know, passion is part of the family of anger, in my humble opinion. Um, just like, you know, if you want bounce back ability, it's exactly the same. You know, if you want somebody to bounce back from adversity, then they're not going to do Absolutely. that cognitively. They don't, they don't think themselves into bouncing back. That's a that's an emotional thing, but then you can't say, "Oh, we want bounce back ability, but we don't want people to be angry or frustrated," because they're they're one in the same family of um, family of feelings. Yeah. And even though there are those one to one structures in place, so earlier on you talked about that supervision being um, those one to one appraisals or those one to one meetings or whatever they are. Um, in my experience, they typically focus on the work. Oh yeah, yeah. They don't. They don't focus on how are you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that it's not. It's not a. Um, or, or if it does, sometimes it's framed as like, oh, you can only do that in a coaching session. You know, so you have one to ones, and then you have separate coaching sessions, and it's in the coaching sessions that you can explore that the emotive stuff. In the one to ones, it's just talking about how you're performing against your objectives. Absolutely. Um, or if I say I'm not okay and I'm struggling this week. Is that okay to, to be not okay this week? Or does that mean that I am not capable and not doing well at my job? Well, invariably, it, 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 I, I would suggest 
that it's perceived as I'm un- I'm I'm incapable and I'm not doing well at doing my job. So so um, it, that's exactly when you said about what was the difference about what Childline created in those environments. That is it. So it's one thing having a nice form that you fill out every time. That means that you will always ask somebody how they are doing. But you can ask someone how they are in so many different ways. And I know that would make sense to you in terms of intonation and what are you thinking behind asking it? What are you doing when you're sitting with that person in that environment? How are you looking at them? Are you do you are you there with your own urgency and your own agenda because you you know you need to ask that question, but really you need to skip past it because you need to know what they're doing with that piece of work that you wanted them to do that's late and someone's asking you for. So mm. I think, and we've said, you've said about the range of emotions, and I and I think you make me think about that a lot differently in terms of all emotions are emotions, and we don't put them into these are the negative ones and these are the positive ones because the reality of it is that emotion is emotion. But I think a lot of people do decide that some are unwanted and some are wanted, and I think we do that with ourselves as well. Yeah. So if you want people to do if you if you create emotional work and you want people to demonstrate intentful emotion so you create a space where you want people to be happy happy at work you also need to make sure that there's a space and i don't mean a little wellness corner or a little room over there uh, for people to feel or some, or some, yo- or some yoga or some yoga mats on the or floor or some yoga mats on the floor and some scented candles you need to. There needs to be a a environment and a culture and a space where people can feel rubbish and feel a bit shit and be a bit angry at Peter in that meeting for talking down to them. Mm. And the the, the biggest no, I, thing that I, I sorry I just jumped over you. No, no, you go. No, you go. Just one of the biggest things that I often come back to, and I'm not saying that I always practice with this in mind, because um, definitely in my personal relationships I find it difficult. Um, is that before change, there has to be acceptance. I truly believe that wholeheartedly. Uh, It's Rogerian, it's person-centred. It's before change, there has to be acceptance. So if you're... Tell me more about that. So uh, accepting and validating and truly understanding and empathizing with where somebody is right now before they will be able to let that go or move past it. It doesn't mean you have to do something about it or take the problem away or that you have to take responsibility for shifting their emotion. It means that if somebody is is angry at work and all of the conditions of that environment are, are just going, well, don't be, you shouldn't be. This isn't the right space for that, so just stop being angry. I'm not saying that people say that verbally. I'm talking about what gets communicated by a culture and an environment. And if we're in an environment where we feel a bit angry and that's the messages and that's what we're telling ourselves, it isn't going to go away. It's kind of just going to bubble and bubble and turn into something else and maybe leak out and expose and arrive when we don't want it to. Yep. And sometimes I'm, facilit- I'm facilitating things and I che- I'm che- checking with myself and I'm calibrating with myself and doing some reflexivity because I'm listening to someone and I'm thinking, oh, you're really, 
you're really going off on a point that's not really relevant to the discussion or you're you're really um, annoyed or frustrated about this. And I know that everything that I'm doing with my body and my verbal responses matter because if I don't accept where that person is and if I don't just validate that their contribution is valuable and equally as important as everybody else's, they will keep coming back into discussion and repeating themselves. I don't know if that resonates with anyone else who's a facilitator, but there's that element of, gosh, that person just kept coming back and saying the same thing over and over and again. They wouldn't let that go like a terrier at a trouser leg. And I just think if you, if you, if you actually accept it, genuinely find a way to do that. So I find myself thinking in my head, what's the best sentence that can, one, let this person know I have truly heard where they're at and empathize with them? And at the same time, gently close it off and redirect the focus and the discussion where it's meant to be. So I I I agree with you, and in in my head, I was uh, the words that I was saying was they haven't been heard. So if it's it's like what, what, any conversation where somebody repeats themselves, mm. they repeat themselves because they don't feel like they've been heard. Yeah, you've you, you've you've missed you've missed something or. Or they 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 don't feel as that, or they haven't finished, you know. But if 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 there is if somebody repeats themselves in an in, in a discussion, then they they feel like they haven't been heard, that they have their their opinion hasn't been, um, to use your word, accepted, not not validated or agreed with, but they just haven't been heard, and, um, and and I think often that's misunderstood or it's misattributed as, um, yeah, being a being a pain or being like a dog with a bone or being um uh you know or you're always looking backwards and not looking forwards or you're being well, negative that's the case, you're having, or you're being you're negative a, or you're, you're, being, or you're, you're being obstructive and, a and we're having a can-do meeting here yeah oh, oh i'll come back to that, that pushed a button, um, didn't it? <laughs> yeah it did <laughs> but that i you know all, all of that stuff then is is about um the yeah i agree with you that, that that what's happening there is that person hasn't been heard there well that doesn't what i'm not what i'm advocating for is that person needs to be heard and that person doesn't need to be agreed with or yeah. um or to or to be um supported or you know you don't acquiesce to whatever the demand or the, the expectation is yeah it's not about i'm go- um, okay then i'm going to rush and placate you and do something about that it's yeah yeah yeah, it's it's about making sure that that person has has been heard. Now, like you said, there's a number of ways that you can do that. It could be there's there's a sentence to acknowledge the 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 importance and the weight of it, um, and then the reframing to move it onto something else. Um, or you know, it's, it could be oh, let's take it. Um, that's really important. And you know what? I don't think we've got the time to to invest in exploring that in in the level of detail that we need to right now would you agree yes i'd agree okay so let's save that for another time then you know so there's ways that you can um can validate it yeah but yeah 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 okay um so emotion work then is 
is individuals working with their emotion in, in, in the workplace and or doing work that has emotion in it. Emotional labour is where individuals need to or, or are required or expected to regulate or um, manage their emotions in a particular way for the role that they do. So if you're a um, waiter or waitress, you need to be happy and polite to customers. If you are a... Um, call handler in a call center you need to be polite and respectful to customers if you are a um, manager in a business you need to be supportive and um, happy to your teams or whatever that might be yeah and not shout um, at people yes um, and then emotional exploitation then is where an organization or emotional negligence because we've used those two different terms is where an organization is saying, these are the expectations we have of you to do emotional work and or emotional labor, but we are not going to provide you with the safety equipment that's needed to allow you to do that well. Mm. Is, that, is, that an, is that an accurate summary of what we've covered so far? Yeah, and I think I, I'm not sure I meant emotional negligence. I just meant emo- negligence in terms of a responsible workplace and employer that provides those resources. Because ultimately, I think that people are able to do that for themselves if the right conditions are there and if the skills have been developed to do that. A bit like you you don't need to go and line everybody up and check that they've put their hat on and their earplugs in and their boots are tied up properly every single day. You can... um, enable people to do that for themselves and I think we um it's like it's mental health awareness week or it has been hasn't it and there's a lot of people talking about self-care and yeah I'm I'm in danger of going off on tangents I don't know if to stop myself but there are so many um, go on we're tangent go tangent go 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 there are so many initiatives and there is so much money in the industry of self-care and it makes me really sad because I anticipate that um, you've, ha- you've asked this a bit already, how organisations and people can do this stuff better. So do emotional labour and, and, and doing that healthy, healthily and safely better. And it really is back to basics. And it really is back to how we treat other people. It isn't about... so. It makes me sad because I recently learned about mindfulness courses and um, somebody came back from one and said, well, I'm not going to that again. Uh, it's a load of rubbish. And um, I thought, oh, I've got to unpick that because I'm, I'm quite fond of mindfulness and what, what it is and the power of it and what I believe it to be. And then I'm also uh. aware that it's become a buzzword and there's a very broad church now and lots of people think it's lots of different things. So I started talking to this person and as they were going talking about it, saying, well, this guy said to, to do this or to sit there or to, to visualise this or to move my arm like this because there were different exercises that they'd done. But when I asked why, yeah. they weren't prepared to tell me why. So I, I had a chat with them. So this went on a couple of weeks, actually, because we had a chat about it. And I'd encouraged them back to, when they went back to this session, because they said they'll give it another whirl, to ask those questions and just ask for a little bit more. Um, and on the mm. second time of going back and asking those questions, they came back even more deflated because she said, well, he just said, because it's good for me. 
because it's good to do it for myself. And she'd one of the things she'd really dismissed was breathing. Okay. And I think breathing is the most powerful tool and skill that everybody with lungs has access to. And to understand how having some control over your own breathing can tip your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system to to tip your stress fight or flight response in the opposite direction by doing breathing because physiologically that's what it does is the most enabling and powerful thing that you can remind people of and I'm saying remind people of because we all know that we can breathe and I was just deeply disappointed for that person that she just wanted a little bit more information a little bit more rigor behind why she was being asked to do breathing techniques and I think everyone deserves that. And then we're getting into me- models of <laughs> approaches. It's very traditional um, medical model to do too. So to, to mm. give someone an idea or a, a solution, but do it to them, is very different to enabling somebody to do something for themselves. So is there? Hmm, so there's there's a there's a few things in there for me. So um, what is it about the um, what what are the other back to basics things then? So you said for, for you said for me it's about back to basics. What what are some of those back to basics things that um, can really make a difference in terms of the the emotional work and or the emotional labour that people in workplaces will be going through? Um, listening to people and providing space to listen to people. And it it's having um, environments and meet, like one-to-ones and group meetings where people genuinely want to listen and hear each other. And don't do that with any urgency or desire to problem solve. And I, I do say back to basics, but I do know that that takes some practice and some skill. Um, paying attention to reflective practice and going through cycles of reflective practice and actually taking the time to prioritise that and put that into your, your weekly schedule. And... I suppose what I'm what I was thinking by by back to basics is you don't need to spend lots of money on a well-being campaign. You need to perhaps look at what space for conversation and being heard and listening and reflection and self-learning and that kind of stuff. So I think it was on um, episode 12 when I was chatting with um, Dawn Archer. We touched really briefly on it. Um, uh, well, we touched bri- really briefly on listening, sorry. When I say it, that's what I meant. We touched <laughs> really briefly on listening. And and how... Um, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to avoid being really kind of trite and cliche 
and, and mm. trotting out the whole, you know, you've got two ears and one mouth, <laughs> use them in proportion or listen to, you know, listen. Don't listen to respond, listen to hear. Or, and I don't like the back like to that. basics phrase. That's why I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard. Listening is really hard. And I think yeah. that's the bit that, that I want to get, that, that I want to get across at the moment is that listening is really hard to do. Mm. Um, because it takes so much effort. And, mm. and it also take and, and, and both of that's in terms of the actual physical act itself of giving somebody all of your attention. Mm. So, right, I'm going to put, I'm going to give you everything, all of my attention. Mm. So I think it was about, I don't know, at some point recently, I could hear somebody knocking on my door. Um, and it, you know, whoever that is, they can wait. But it was really hard for me then to go, right, I'm going to ignore that knocking that I can hear and I'm going to bring all of my attention back to, to listening to Joe because it would have been dead easy for me to just, you know, lose my attention or go and look out the window yeah. and see who it was and, you know, make some kind of signal that I'm on the phone or whatever that might be. And you wouldn't have necessarily known any different because you couldn't see me. You know, we're, we're, we're talking over an audio connection, not a video one. Mm. Um, but the, but that's hard. That's hard to do. Yeah. And, and I think, and, and, and also it's not a, um, and there's, it's hard to do because it involves lots of self-discipline. So it involves me not letting my mind wander. It involves me not wanting to uh, solve your problem for you. It involves me not wanting to interject. But it also involves me needing to hold what I'm hearing in in my mind so that I can clarify what you mean by certain things if I need to. So I can ask additional questions for clarification or I can say, so what I'm hearing is you're saying this, is that right, is that correct? And and that is really hard work, and I think it, it's it, it's underestimated about how hard that is to do because it is cognitive is because it is so cognitively demanding. Yeah, it is. Steps off soapbox. <laughs> it is. It is cognitively demanding. Um, I just and it's uh, emotionally demanding. Yeah, it's sorry, the ele- it's the emotional labor, isn't it? Because emotional labor is a yeah. physiological and psychological practice. Yeah, because I'm I'm having to hold my feeling of wanting to help, or my feeling of wanting to interject, or my feeling of wanting to to add something. I'm having to hold all of that, let it go, yeah. so that I can still be with you. So it's not holding it to go. Oh, hang on, when she when did she stop? When did she stop? Oh, she stopped. Here I go. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's holding it and letting it go. What am I thinking? I'm thinking. That of all the the exciting things that we think can provide solutions to helping people with this stuff, that it's just psychology. And I, I don't know if it comes down to beliefs and what you believe about the people that you work with. Uh, and again, it's about that that underpins your approach. So if you believe that people have the capacity within to manage their own emotions and find solutions and solve their own problems, then wouldn't your practices and the way that you are with and for them reflect that? And is that a choice Mm. and a choice that you make all all the time because it's a continual practice? Um, When when does it become 
when does an intentional intentional behavior that you do become habitual and the way you are most of the time? And is it by the nature of it that listening and doing the emotional labor for how you are with other people is an ongoing practice? I think it is. I think it is, and I, I, I um, what, what is it that I'm trying to not say is that why wouldn't, which is potentially an extreme view, why wouldn't you want to be in a world where you see other people as, as that capable and that brilliant, and go for that kind of connection and environment and conditions for people? Because whether you are driven by business goals and revenue to get the best out of someone is to truly believe that they are capable and that brilliant. I guess it's making me think of the thinking environment as well and about questions and about thinking and, and... the thinking environment conditions fit because they fit with the underpinning of psychosocial approaches that I have, have along the way developed a fluency in, in that everything that we do is determined by the thinking that we do before it. Okay. I felt like there was more. Yeah. Um, I don't know if... Because I'm, I'm trying to stop myself. Go, try and, I don't want the conversation to be me going off on a, um, a ethereal, academic like rant about what I believe and where I come from and what, what's important in the world. I don't necessarily want it to go down there because I think it needs to be... Because I'm, I'm really, really passionate and interested in making sure that anything like that connects to practical reality and is applicable and accessible and useful and helpful. But, yeah, so I'm stuck with what what to say next and whether to keep it in my own head in terms of, like, if we, if we ask better questions and get better answers, it makes for a better world. And if we create conditions where people can think freely or better for themselves, then everything that they experience and how they behave will be better for them and everyone around them. Okay. I'm with you. And so you're you're worried that if we explore that, it, it becomes too um, an idealised discussion rather than practical, applic- applicable stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spend okay. a lot of time. I think I do a lot of attention and and on, on making that connection between. So I. 
would describe myself as a humanistic psychologist and then I want to, I think it's important to be able to describe what that is and what that means but not just in terms okay. of theory and outlook on the world but that is where it comes from and then what does that mean happens in practice or what's the intention to happen in practice and so I guess it's it's because we're we're talking about um uh emotional work and emotional labor and emotional exploitation and I'm I'm just thinking how um we talk about that but we talk about how that can be better for people. So for people who are managing other people and for people individually themselves. And then I'm going back to the other bit because I just think it's a it's a choice of whether you it's a choice of whether you want it to be or not. So so I find it really interesting. So yesterday, for example, uh, I was with a client and um, we were talking about perception and perceptions. And we were exploring how um, that if you work from home, it comes with a um, an implied or sometimes... Um, explicit um, assumption that that means you're not doing any work and you're hanging out in the washing or you're just chilling and watching Jeremy Kyle or, or whatever that might be and when that's challenged it's then uh, explained away as a joke I was only kidding I wasn't you know, I didn't really mean it I know you're working really hard but um, that that I, that the fact that or or the the reality that that is part of the narrative then says that um, we don't trust that you're working when we can't see you. Mm. And then what that creates then is a um, a view that I, as the employer, am responsible for your productivity as the employee. And, I, and, yeah. and that's a really interesting way to look at that. To say that I, I as I as the employer am, am responsible for making sure that you as the employee are productive. Um and and what that then says is that I then have a requirement to monitor your time or to monitor your um your presence or to monitor your activity, you know, when are you logging on, when are you logging off, when are you sending emails, that sort of stuff. Mm. So then what happens is people will then work with that and respond to that, you know, so um, whether that be uh, you know a story that we shared yesterday of oh I, I know that so and so sets their emails to be sent at like ten o'clock or eleven o'clock at night to make it look as though they're working really hard, um, and, and that sparked then you know a wider debate around well actually is that an indication of you working hard or is that an indication of you working ineffectively and stuff like that so it's a really really good discussion yeah but I think where, where where I'm coming from is is agreeing with you that the the you know the assumption that you begin with. Or the implied assumption that you begin with, um, then shapes the the connections, or the discussions, or the relationships that follow. Yeah. So, so for example, one of my favourite questions is, um, or the, one of the questions that I ask regularly. So maybe not a favourite question. One question I ask regularly is, how can I best help you right now? Now, I am very aware that that question presupposes a number of things one it presupposes that you need help 
there is that is that you know and I'm aware that there's a, that, that that assumption sits underneath it um and actually is that is that the right assumption that I want to begin with do I want to begin from an assumption that that someone needs help and or because the secondary assumption is that I can be of help is that you know mm. I am a person that can help um and, and those are two quite risky assumptions to begin from because actually they might not need the individual might not need help they just you know might need something you know they, they, they might be quite capable of doing something all on their own and they don't need anything from me to help them with that and or they don't need anything from me at all actually they you know they they're aware of any support that they may need and they know how to get that either from themselves or other people they don't need it from me um and yet it's still a question that i ask and and I ask that question because I want to, in, in, at least in part, communicate that I care and that uh, I am interested in that person's welfare. And I'm doing it, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm doing it by implicature rather than overtly, because if I do it, over, if I do it overtly, it would involve me creating a, an utterance like, I believe in you as a, an individual and that you are capable and self-sustaining and you you know, are able to solve your own problems. I also want you to know that I care and I'm interested in mm. your welfare. Mm. So it's important to me that you know that that care and that interest is there. Yeah. Now, the challenge is that utterance is A, a lot longer, and B, <laughs> is, um, you know, is a bit weird, yeah. So... <clears throat> Or or, or 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 is unconventional. So rather than go, well, let's go for unconventional. So it's unconventional in its approach, and so yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. Actually, to be to be fair, now I think but I guess <laughs> go on. Well, it's just making me think that 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 there is the point. Then isn't it? We talk about um, emotional um, resilience, or uh, the opposite of what emotional exploitation is is that the responsibility to provide the resources to fulfill the contracts of labor and to do that work is the responsibility of the employer and the conditions of that environment and then having provided those resources and those skills it's the choice and the self-determined action of individuals and people to do it, to put the hat on and to put the boots on and to tie them properly. Yeah. And in, and in the same way that it, it has been a long journey to get to a point where individuals are self-determining to put on the hat and the ear defenders yeah. and the high vis and the boots, because I, you know, I remember working at McDonald's and I was vehemently trained that when I when when you're dropping the vats, so what what that means is, <laughs> so the the fact that the um the fact that the chips or the chicken or the veggie burger or whatever are cooked in, and they're cooked in different fat by the way, so just to be clear, veggie, veggie burgers have their own fat. Thank you. Um, it's okay, but when you're doing that, it was clear, right? You need to put on this headgear with a visor. You wear this. You wear this kind of uh, neck to shin um, rubber um, uh, apron. You wear really thick rubber gloves. You wear gauntlets up to your elbows. 
Um, and you you must do all of you must wear all of those things before you drop the vats. And the vats must have been turned off, and the, the vat temperature, the fat temperature, must be a certain one before you uh, before you drop it. Because otherwise you're you're taking fat out that's at, say 180 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and you are sorry 180 degrees Celsius, and you're taking it out and you are um, filtering it in that way. I would probably say in the two and a half years I worked at McDonald's, on less than and I, I must have dropped the vats I don't know 200 times, and I probably wore all of that safety equipment on 20 occasions, so 10 percent of the time. Um, not because I didn't cognitively understand that that was what needed to that that would keep me safer, mm. but because it just took time. Yeah, and it was, you know, and it made it made my job longer and it made my job harder because you know what, trying to crouch down and attach a pipe underneath the vat when you're wearing these massive gloves and these gauntlets and this floor to this neck to shin apron is mm. just and you're wearing this blooming visor so you're trying to look where to screw the pipe on and you can't really see what you're doing. It all just gets in the way, so I just wrap a cloth around the pipe and stick it on and off we go um you know occasionally wear some gloves maybe mm. um if if i was dropping the vat when the fl- when the fat was meant to be too hot you know i was like, oh well i need to need to get it done so i won't wait for the fat to cool down i just drop it now mm. um so th- there's the, there's yeah. a long journey to an individual self-determine that they're going to do the right things mm. for their own safety for their own health and safety mm. So, and, and from a men, you know, from an emotional and or mental well-being, welfare or well-being perspective, we're, we're a long way behind that curve. So I agree with you that, you know, in, as part of the contract of employment or the implied contract of employment of you providing with the tools and resources I need for me to be effective and successful in my job, we do that with physical resources, to, to allow people to be successful and so on in their job. Do we do that with resources to support them emotionally and mentally? Then no, I don't think we do. Yeah. It's a bit sad, that. Makes me... I find it motivating. What shall we do about it? Sad and motivating. Let's do something about well, it. Well... Let's tell you what, should we do a podcast? <laughs> yeah, and, and, should, and, should, and should we put that out to the big wide world so that we, so that we, can, in, we can inspire change in people? Yeah. So I, th- so I think that's, I think genuinely though, I know I've just said that tongue in cheek, but genuinely I think that's what we're doing. Well, that, that is part of what I'm doing with this, with, with all the work that I do and with this podcast in particular is saying that, you know, we, we have a responsibility to ourselves, to each other as humans and to the world at large and future generations to equip people and workplaces to be well, physically well, emotionally well, mentally well. And at the moment, I believe that the workplace is poor at looking after emotional and mental well-being. It's, it's a lot yeah. better at looking after physical well-being than it ever used to be. Um, but we've got to do more. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a responsibility to do more. Don't waste money on hammocks and meditation rooms if um, you've not got the underpinning, underlying things that make those things useful and helpful and possible in the first place. Yes, absolutely. 
and and I think and if and if the if the challenge is time, all right, if that's the challenge, if that's one that gets levied at me all of the time. I haven't got time to do this stuff, Phil. Then that money that you would have spent on the meditation room or the whatever that might be, employ somebody else. Yeah. You know, if if that's what if that's what it is, then you know, use that money to to buy time. Mm. You know, but get more capacity in the work in the workforce yeah. so that you can do these things and it will pay itself back mm. in spades mm. it's a bit like um, um a, a, something demonstrating things to realize their effectiveness as well isn't it because it's it, this is we're talking about non-tangible stuff stuff you can't see stuff you can't hold and go yeah well that's that's given me all of this um and sometimes it's how i feel about coaching is that it's not that someone realizes how good it can be until they experience it yep and and i think it it can the value can be demonstrated and that's part of the reason that that i i get so fascinated with evaluation is part of the reason that i do so much reading and work around it because the that that is something that you can i think you can tangibly measure the impact or effectiveness of some uh, of things that we're talking about here. It's not obvious, it, though, is it? It's not. To, no, it, but it just needs. It, it needs. So I agree with you. It's not obvious, but it, it need. What it just needs is a different way of looking at the measures of success. Yeah. And, and what you know, what are you, what are you using as ways of, um, uh, of doing so? But yeah, that's a that's a conversation for another for another day. I think. Okay, so I'm going to bring it together then, I think. Um, in terms of, are there any other myths or misconceptions um, around what we've talked about that you'd like to address or kind of put put right before I bring us together and formally close the podcast? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think so. What about for you? No, I don't think so. I think I've in, in my soapbox moment of, of five or ten minutes ago I think I did I think I did that for me so in, in terms of um, if people wanted to find out more then if they wanted to where would you recommend people would go for books or videos or articles or stuff like that if they wanted to find out more what about these particular things that we've spoken about I, I want to say everywhere yeah. and anywhere and be open to letting things come into your consciousness that haven't before and and different perspectives and pick up different books and listen to different podcasts and um, particular books I like I know one was mentioned on one of your podcasts before which is the um, The Managed Heart yes Yep, Sarah Jane Lenny on episode two talks about that she one. She does, yep. and I like Covey, Stephen Covey, First Things First. Okay, good. Um, a General Theory of Love. Okay. And my most favourite, Psychology of Coaching, Mentoring and Learning by Ho Law is wonderful. What was it called again? The psychology, psychology of coaching, mentoring, and learning. Okay. Wonderful. All right. I'll add all of those to the podcast. I'll add all of those to the show notes. Sorry. Okay.
Okay, fab, thank you. And is there anyone that you would recommend, suggest that we get on the podcast? Oh, I haven't thought of anybody beforehand, but I know there is and will be. So I'll, okay. I'll get back to you So do you want to let me know? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Sounds good. All right, then. Well, um, in that case, I'm going to bring it together and say, Joe, thank you so much for your time today. And you have, as I, as I outlined in my introduction, you made me think a lot and you made me think hard. So um, I'm very grateful for that. So thank you very much. Well, likewise. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, lovely. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening. Thank you.